Everybody and welcome back to another edition of the POD cast, your favorite podcast about new metal. This is episode number 54. I'm John, and with me is a man who can't feel the way he did before. It's Brian Quinby. Uh, thanks, thanks for pulling me back into the Lincoln Park verse, everybody. I really appreciate it. it it's been yes. a, a joy for me. The Lincoln Park verse. Yeah. The LP, the LP So I'm going to give them this 36 minutes. These guys were so ahead of their time. They were tight. They were tight. <laughs> they said, they said, people don't want to listen to a lot of shit. And we agreed. We said, yes, keep it, keep it slick. Yeah. I always, I'll never not agree with that. It's you got to fucking keep it, keep it short. Keep it simple. Stupid. Is that what it is? Keep yeah. it. Simple. That's what the band that's kiss. kiss. That's what it stands for. It's not what it stands for. It's nice it and and service. They, they keep that's right, Brian. No, it's keep it simple, <laughs> stupid. They were they were reading a lot of motivational books around the time they were they were naming their band, and they thought, oh, it's very uh weird for me that it's knights and Satan's service because they're like like theater guys <laughs> like, yeah. i don't i don't buy like kiss i i can't imagine even in like the 70s that kiss felt like a dangerous band like i just can't i know they wore face paint and they shot the flames and whatever but like at at no point has paul stanley looked like anything other than a theater kid who's in a rock band i i guess i i like understand why parents were a little freaked out by it and i understand why kids were like crazy for it but like i did always think and this is just i i don't alice cooper seems a little more edgy than kiss to me yes, for sure his name's yeah. alice already that's a like in the 70s wait wait a minute you're listening to a man called alice that's what like my dad would have said if i was like a generation earlier it's this funny. guy's this this man's name is alice it's it's funny because all these guys are like basically religious like all of them you know ozzy osbourne like he talks about how he's Christian all the fucking time. He's like, you know, he doesn't like, I, I guess like he would probably say like, I don't like the contradiction in the church and shit like that. But he talks about how he believes in God and like kiss. I don't know how religious they are, but they're like, I don't, I've never taken a drink or done a drug and all that shit. And like Alice Cooper. I should have been in kiss. Yeah, Alice Cooper is like super religious too. And you're just like Dave Mustaine. Is I was just listening to Matt Cow yesterday talk about how he had a conversation with Dave Mustaine, where Dave Mustaine and this is Matt Cow saying it, so this could be true or this could be the biggest lie of all time. Sure. He said that Dave Mustaine explained to him that there are certain sounds and 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 pieces of a sound wave that can bring demons into your life. And Megadeth is really about trying to navigate away from those and stay within the good sounds that keep Jesus in your life or whatever. And I'm just mm. like, God, these guys are, I don't, 
I guess it's just the older He's right. generation. He's but right. None of them. I'm are only cool. listening to the devil tone. Yeah. <laughs> well, he did say, and then Ben Cow said, I went and saw Disturbed, and they were definitely conjuring demons. And I was like, Disturbed. <laughs> But that's what I mean. Disturbed is dangerous in the same way Kiss is dangerous. Yes. Yeah. Well, Disturbed is funny because, like, you start to think, like, this fucking guy is the biggest dork out there. And he's living the life of the Kiss, Alice Cooper. Like, the dork. They're all dorks. All of them. Like, all the cool people were, like, Lou Reed. And stuff like Lou Reed, David Bowie, uh, the Rolling Stones had a cool period. Uh, the you know, like those were the cool people, and they're the ones people are like, Oh, you're fucking hipster. And it's like, no, I just wanted to listen to cool people sing about doing drugs and, and rocking and partying, you know. And I know Kiss sings about rocking and partying, obviously. That's yeah, but Kiss, Kiss sings about like Kiss sings about partying like uh like hey we're 16 and my buddy's parents are out of town. I'm not yeah, I don't even dislike Kiss. I mean, I don't listen to them, but I don't I mean whatever. Yeah, I had to watch now. I had to watch the Gene Simmons sex tape. I guess that was well, uh guess that's Gene, really the only thing that Kiss has ever done badly to me. <laughs> Gene Simmons might be like my least favorite of those guys oh for sure because i think i think because kiss was kind of lame actually like okay come on john i I think that that's but that's fine i it's fine it's not a big deal i i don't even mean lame i just mean like they they were not scary dudes like they were being painted as scary dudes and they're not scary dudes and i think that that's part of the reason why gene simmons was like yeah fucked everything that walks because like he felt like he had to make up for his band all being like you know kind of not not hard it's crazy how many of the like seventies and eighties guys were fucking dorks. Like it's it you wouldn't yes. think about it. Like Ozzy was kind of cool. He did cool stuff or whatever. But then you start like a lot of the ones that reformed. You're like, fine. You there is no world or any time in recorded history where Gene Simmons was cool. No, not. Uh, not there was never one. Oh, if he wasn't in Kiss, he would be like the biggest <laughs> loser alive. There was not fucking one minute where I was like thinking, "Wow, this is Gene Simmons. He's really got something to say. He's a cool fucking no. dude." And you're right, all the songs. And it, you know, when you look at Alice Cooper too, he's got a lot of his songs are like, "I just got out of school and I want to go get a sixer and hang out with my fucking friends." You yeah, know? dude, they were singing about high school parties. They were not. They were not <laughs> Lou Reed. They were not David Bowie. They, you know, they weren't like, "Oh yeah, smoke crack with." Uh, Johnny Sedgwick (laughs) like Johnny Thunders and like you don't find that out until you're fucking older either unless you have some kind of special parent like my dad he didn't he he, the music he tried to get me into was Pink Floyd the delicate sound of thunder era Pink Floyd after post Roger Waters Pink Floyd everybody's favorite era yeah (laughs) or chicken chicken foot for a period of time, he was really into Sammy Hagar. Like, he never was like, and I don't think a lot of parents were like, you should check out the Dead Boys. That's some shit. Because if my dad heard the Dead Boys, he'd be like, none of these guys know how to play their instrument. That guy can't sing at all. You know what I mean? 
If he heard Chinese rocks, he would fucking like be disgusted by it. You know, I just got um, I just got the New York Dolls album for Christmas this year on on vinyl, and it's like one of my favorites ever. But it's like I didn't find out about any of this until it was too late for me to be a cool fan. You know, yeah. Like, I'm sorry about that. School, if you were in high school and you were like, I'm a fucking I'm a fucking fan of Lou Reed. That would be like the coolest high school kid to ever live. And now everybody else in the school would call you a dork. But all the adults that know you would be like, you're in. You're cool. That's how it is with Gwen a lot of times. She's like, people are like, wait, you're into the Pixies or like Joy Division or yeah. like uh, uh, Lana? D- like you're into that stuff? And she's like, yeah. And they're like, wow, that's. I was like that with some of my students where, yeah, like if they were into actual like indie or whatever, I'd be like, oh, okay, you're cool. Yeah. And then they probably went home and stopped listening to it because they were like, oh, my fucking loser teacher tried to talk to me about Radiohead today. And now I'm, now I'm out. I hate Radiohead. I'm never listening to them again. Well, yeah, and I think, well, my dad liked the dork bands, so it was never going to fuck. These guys were all dorks. They're all like businessman dorks. Yeah. It's it's funny to be talking about that because obviously we're covering Linkin Park today. We'll we'll get to that in a minute, but you know, you want to talk about businessman dorks, Linkin Park have got you covered. But yeah, I think, I think too, though, Bri, part of it is the era where like there just wasn't that much information about them either. It's like, you know, they do the odd interview here and there, but you just assumed that if bands were playing arenas, they were cool guys that were doing a bunch of drugs and banging chicks and like just having a good time. And I'm sure they were. Yeah. But, at the, but, at, but at the same time, they went home and then they were like, yeah. Um, I'm a businessman. I I mostly do business yeah. while I rock. I like to rock while I do business. <laughs> yeah, Gene Simmons gets home and he's like, "Well, what's happening with the Kiss shampoo? Can we get the is the, is the Kiss shampoo happening? Uh, because uh, that, we we don't have any we don't have any part of the uh, the beauty market. There's no Kiss products in the beauty aisle. Do we have the Kiss <laughs> shampoo going? Puts his glasses down to his nose. How much are we paying the assistants? Can we cut that? Do we need we can we have one less assistant? Is that good? How many roadies do we really need? Like his band that needs like 87 roadies. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, like I, I paid attention on this tour, and I'm gonna be honest with you. Uh Dan, what is he doing? What is he even <laughs> doing on the road? We need what is what is his job? What would you say Dan's job is? Can you pick a different name when you do that? <laughs> what would you say? Tom's job is Kiss. what is Tom doing every time I look around Tom's not doing anything he's picking his ass fire him it's funny that Kiss didn't like Kiss being a Kiss came up in New York around all the punk stuff like they were there when all that stuff was happening and it would have been so much cheaper for them to be Kiss with the uh, playing at the CBGB and strutter is a song. Like a lot of their songs would fit in that world a little bit, not all of them, but some of their, and like, it would have been so much cheaper. I don't know if they'd be richer because you can't merchandise that, but goddamn, I can't imagine how, 
pissed off Gene Simmons was when it was like time to go on tour and they had to hire like 15 pyro guys, 15 guitar tuners, fucking guys to handle the, 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 the pyro that comes out of the guitar, like, like all the stuff that they had to have to go on tour. It's like, it's what we always say about Slipknot. Like they're not really cheap guys. Slipknot splits it nine ways. How many, I, I know that, Spits it basically two ways, and then <laughs> yeah. Else gets yeah, they give Ace Freely and Peter Chris, a, a, you know, a hundred bucks and a coupon to McDonald's every once in a while. It's funny <laughs> to think of. The, I was recently watching a, a old talk show with Peter Chris on it. Thought of Dan a little bit. I, I think it was like Donahue or something. He was fucking talking about aliens and being pissed off because but lincoln park it is this is a good conversation to have with lincoln park they don't put on airs i I don't think anybody thought lincoln park was cool because of the the, we don't curse you know what i mean we don't curse and we don't you know we we try to keep clean because we're trying to be role models and shit like i couldn't i didn't like them i've said that before this is Lincoln Park is the most not Brian coded band that we cover. It's the biggest band that we cover where I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't get it. I don't get it. But I think the songs sound good. And I don't <laughs> think they're cynical. I sent you a thing when we were talking about coming up with the challenge about how, and I wrote this in my notes for a few of the songs where it like, it just feels like those memes that like lonely people you went to high school with post at like two 30 in the morning on Facebook, where it's like, I guess if you, if you gotta have fake friends, I guess it's good to have good looking fake friends or some shit like that (laughs) (laughs) where you can tell something happened and there's a specific person that they're mad at, but they're being very vague about it. So (laughs) like, that's how I felt about listening to hybrid theory and that's how i felt this time too where it's just like these are such immature feelings (laughs) and i get it and it's like you said kiss was kiss was geared towards high school kids that think that it's going to be rad when they're old enough to party and like uh that's what this is that's totally what this is and that's why i liked mtv when i was fucking 10 when I was like way too young, it's just like, man, when I turn 15, I'm going to be just like the bullet boys. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they just feel they they feel like the opposite. Like they feel like guys that I guess in my mind, like I would I've always thought about if I was a rock and roll guy, if I was a rock star, which is something I want to do, I'd be getting into it for the the very opposite reasons of Lincoln Park. Like I'd be getting into it to party and because pe- people would look at me and think I'm cool <laughs> and like stuff like that. I w- I wouldn't get it and and you know, I'd probably I'd probably do the opposite of what they did. They they really leaned on the music and uh I could never possibly do that. I would definitely <laughs> just I have lean. no talent actually. So it I have no sense talent. for me to lean on the music. Well, no, <laughs> It'll I, be all personality. I see myself as as if I had made the decision to do it as closer to like not a not a kiss thing necessarily, but like a big personality 
not a great musician. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like what my dream is. And that's not these guys' dream at all. There, theirs is be a great musician, make art, you know? Well, speaking of, let's get into it. This is going to be probably one of the longest introductions to an album ever because it is one of the most successful albums that we've ever covered on the show. It is Linkin Park's second album, Meteora. It came out on March 25th, 2003, so almost a full three years after Hybrid Theory came out. It was produced by the band as well as Don Gilmore, and it came out on Warner Brothers. Uh, Linkin Park describes the recording process as being 18 months long for this album, uh, which is absolutely bananas. Uh, This album debuted at number one on the Billboard 200. It sold 810,000 copies in its first week. Uh, It is one of the most successful albums of the 21st century. In fact, it has sold around 16 million copies worldwide which makes it the eighth best-selling album thus far of the 21st century. Unbelievable statistics. It was ranked number 36 on Billboard's top 200 albums of the aughts, and Billboard is based mostly on album sales and single sales, so uh, very impressive. Uh, As I said, it debuted at number one on the Billboard 200. Are you ready, Brian, for the list of countries at which this album debuted Number one, here we go. Australia, Austria, Belgium, uh, the European charts, the Billboard European Union chart, Germany, Ireland, Italy, New Zealand, Norway, Portugal, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, and the UK. It debuted at number one and, uh, and the US, obviously, debuted at number two in Canada, Netherlands, Finland, Greece, Hungary, Scotland. And number three at a bunch of various other countries. Uh, unbelievable chart performance year end. Uh, it was number one on the Australian heavy metal and rock albums chart. It was number six on the US Billboard 200. It was still performing so good in 2004. It finished at number 33 of year end 2004. And it came out in early 2003. So pretty unbelievable. And then when Chester Bennington died, In 2017, it recharted again at number 11 on the U.S. Billboard 200, number five in Australia, and a slew of other countries that hit the chart again uh, upon Chester Bennington's death. Uh, The album has gone at least one time platinum in Australia, Austria, Brazil, Denmark, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, New Zealand, Poland, Singapore, Spain, Switzerland, three times platinum in the UK, seven times platinum in the United States. The singles also massive. Somewhere I Belong peaked at number 32 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on the Mainstream Rock Tracks chart. Faint peaked at number 48 on the Billboard 200. Numb peaked at number 11 on the Hot 100. From the inside did not make the Billboard Hot 100, but then they rebounded with Breaking the Habit peaking at number 20. So they released five songs from this album, genuinely one of the largest albums we've ever covered on this show. Uh, Brian, we know quite a bit about how you feel about Linkin Park, and we've, we reviewed Hybrid Theory about four years ago. And I'm curious, you know, if you can tap into, like, was Meteora even on your radar? Because yeah. I know that with Hybrid Theory, you kind of, you heard it, you sort of dismissed Linkin Park. 
But in terms of your history with Linkin Park, are you even engaging with Meteoria? Are you even aware that it's coming out? What is where are you at in 2003 when this gets released? I'm I'm fully into like the strokes and the hives and all that shit. I'm like so far out, so far out in 2003. Gwen was born in 2004 and I had been into like the Mars Volta for like two years by that time. Like I 2003 was when I was way into D Laust in the comatorium. <laughs> I was way into Percocet. And <laughs> A lot of movies like that. There was like a, a fucking two month period where all I ate was Subway. So <laughs> I was a real fucking mess at that time. Because you were on the Jared diet? <laughs> no, I wasn't. If I was on the Jared diet, that'd be one thing. It was it was the one of the more unhealthy subs I was getting every time. Oh, I see. Uh, I was just depressed. I was just like young and depressed and and you know whatever but uh and lincoln park wasn't there to help you out of your depressive it's just hole. not how i feel like i think what happened was i got out of high school we're we're now looking at like i'm like 22 or 23 or something like that and and i'm i've been with katie for a long time and for a few years and like i just my angst was not about the same thing that their angst was about you know, and like, so my angst has pain in a lot of what I've done in my career up to now, too. You know, like you don't hear me often. I mean, obviously, there have been times where I've talked about my relationship with my parents and stuff like that. But you don't hear me very often talking about my my relationships and feelings about other people mostly it's about systems and stuff like that and so my anger at that time was not what was more about like you know we're broke and fucking we can't seem to catch up and we don't have any money and this just doesn't scratch that itch you know and there wasn't a lot of music at the time that did scratch that itch because i don't think in my mind I even understood that Rage Against the Machine was a band that was trying to scratch that itch. I don't think I even noticed that or figured that out. You know, I just figured those were just songs about guys that are mad, you know, right. politics guys that are mad. Um, so I think this stuff just doesn't scream. What year did Hybrid Theory come out, John? 2000. 2000. Yeah. So like I'm already out of school for three years. Like it just it's the kind of angst like corn did that for me. My era is corn does this for you. Uh, as Lim- far as like the sort of like tapping into the emotions that you were like the raw emotions you were feeling at the time. Yeah. It, it's a, what a kid's thing that like the corn thing is like, I was 15 when I first heard it. So yeah, I was like, you know, I recently me and Katie and uh, Gwen were out running and doing shit all day. And uh, Gwen had listened to Pretty Hate Machine recently. And I was like, ah, yeah, let's listen. It's been a really long fucking time. And as we're listening to it, I'm like, look, I'm like driving and I'm like, I used to sit in my fucking room and like cry and listen. (laughs) It feels so mad at some girl that didn't even may have may have even been interested in me. I never said a word or asked right, right. anything. I look at that now, but like, 
or being mad at my parents. I would listen to Pretty Hate Machine, very mad at my parents. And Corn did that for me too, where it would be, I'd be listening to it. I'm mad at my parents. I'm mad at a teacher. I'm mad at some woman that doesn't know any, that will never know I'm mad at her or whatever. You know what I mean? And Linkin Park would scratch that itch if I was like three years younger, I think. Like if I was... If I was just a touch younger, they would have been great for that. But I think I posted this on Twitter the other day where like there's times where I'm like, I would have really liked this band when I was 16. But now I'm listening when I'm reviewing it for the POD cast. I'm like, I would have really liked this band when I was 16, but I'm listening to it now. And I'm like, calm down, dude. It's not, (laughs) you know what I mean? Cut it out. Stop crying. It's not that bad. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm curious then, like, you know, you were saying that, um, you know, the issues you were going through at the time weren't really things that Linkin Park would have been talking about. But then you were also saying you kind of weren't getting that from music at all, like that you were just yeah. listening to like the strokes and the hives and stuff. So like, what was that change for you? Like, is it just getting older or like, at what point did music become like less about, you know, I want to tap into some sort of emotion and more about just like, oh, this sounds good or whatever. Like, what was the kind of thing that like tipped you into the strokes and the hives and that kind of thing? I think the thing that tipped me into that is that I just wanted to have fun. Like I wanted my music to be about partying and doing cool stuff. Um, I also think that I started to internalize a lot of those feelings and uh, I was really fucked up on drugs at that time and stuff. And, and I think that I was just internalizing a lot of that, not really wanting to deal with it while I'm listening to music, not wanting to deal with it when I'm watching movies. I just didn't want to deal with it. And uh, that's what ended. That's what landed me like in rehab and stuff. And that's what made me like who I am now as like, a, 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 I guess, a personality is that I had internalized a lot of that stuff. I never talked about it. And like um, when I started to talk about it was when I started, you know, doing podcasting and stuff like that. And uh, that's when I heard like the street fight was like the most sort of therapeutic thing for me. Cause you know, I would go on that show and talk about some of the stuff I did when I didn't have any money and stuff like that. And then a bunch of people would just message me and be like, I did that too. I went through that and shit like that. And that was what made me realize that there were more people dealing with what I was dealing with, but it's not a fucking cool, like getting payday advances. Isn't something that you want to sing a song about. You know, (laughs) like my bank accounts minus $35. Like I totally get that, but I just, I don't know where I was getting, getting that outlet at, but it it definitely was not listening to music. I, I, I maybe liked a couple stain songs at the time, but I don't even think I liked them after dysfunction. So I just is like one of those. I think when you get in your twenties, you're like, eh, it's not worth screaming about anymore. It's whatever. Or right. when you get out of your twenties, it's just it's not worth screaming about it anymore. It's like whatever. I'm calmed down now because I always feel like I've like very much calmed down in my life <laughs> over the past, you know, probably fifteen years. It's been much calmer of a person than I was before. You know, I started podcasting or whatever. Right. So, yeah, I wasn't getting I just don't think I was getting that from music at that time, which would have made Linkin Park just no reason to listen to almost 
for me. Cause I also, when I was listening to this album, I just heard so much like Deftones. Uh, Minerva specifically was one of the songs that I kept coming back to. And I was like, why well, have Deftones? And they're not doing that kind of music. They're doing the kind of music for adults. And uh, so I got way into them, you know? So I don't know. I, I, I don't think this is bad music at all. I think this is hitting me at the wrong time of my life for making this legendary in my mind. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Like, so Minerva comes out after this album comes out. So I'm just saying it's not a case of them necessarily being um, influenced. I mean, I'm sure they were influenced by Deftones. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, yeah. I mean, I've told this story on the show before, uh, but you know, this could be your first time listening to the show. This album was, was massive for me. Um, th- this was really one of the few albums I can remember the release date being like a real event for me in high school. Like as I got older, um, you know, I think I've talked about this before as well. There was like a record store near me that would do because albums used to come out on Tuesday and there was one record store near me that would stay open until midnight, like on Monday as it turned into Tuesday, like they would stay open till 1 a.m., so you could go to the record store like at midnight and get the get the release before anybody else. So I did that for a few different albums back in the day. But yeah, I think like in high school, um, you know, there wasn't a I never I, I liked music, but there was never a feel of a re, an album's release feeling huge to me. Like I had one record store near my house growing up. And it was really shitty. It was in this like really shitty mall. Like I grew up in a pretty small town and there was this small mall that had only like 50 stores in it or less 40 stores in it. And um, they, there was like a small record store in there and they wouldn't even get stuff on its release date. So it was like, I would sometimes know that an album was out and I would walk to the record store and they'd be like, Oh yeah, we don't have that yet. Like it's cut, you know? So Release dates never meant like the 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 closest store to me when I grew up was like 30 minutes away. It was A and B Sound, which was like a BC legendary BC place that doesn't exist anymore, but they would sell like car audio as well as CDs and stereos and stuff. And <clears throat> this was the first album that came out where it was like, I need this the day it comes out. And so, yeah, the only time I ever skipped class in high school was to go by Meteora. And I know I've said that a bunch on the show, so I apologize if you have heard that story before. But the other thing I was going to say to add to it, because I know I haven't told this part of it before. So, yeah, so me and a buddy, we skipped class. We drove to A&B Sound. We both bought a copy of Meteora. We listened to it in the car on the way back to school. And we were both just like, this is, I mean, this is unbelievable. We were so excited for it. And I could also remember trying to rip somewhere I belong off of like LimeWire or Napster or something. Cause it was like, when that came out, it was like, I got, I got to have this song. Cause it came out quite a bit in advance of the, of the record. And I remember loving it as well. Like there was no sophomore slump for me with Lincoln park at all. But the other thing I can remember is that I was in, so in high school, yeah, I only skipped class once. And that includes grad skip day. My school had a tradition where like, and I, I know other people have this too, where like it was just called grad skip day. And the expectation was that if you were graduating that year, you wouldn't go to school. But I was in the IB program, uh, which is, you know, it's similar to irritable AP. bowel. Yeah, irritable bowel program. And, uh, and so 
I remember the teacher literally saying like, tomorrow's like grad skip day. Are you guys planning on skipping class? Because, you know, if you are, I won't plan a lesson. But if you think you're going to be here and my class was like all these fucking nerds and everyone was like, no, we're not, we're not skipping. And the teacher was like, okay, well then come to class. So, so I didn't even have grad skip day because all the nerds were like, no, we don't want to No, do a lesson. We'll be here. And so I would have skipped. Cause I was like, you know, I wasn't popular, but I was popular for the IB program. So I would have skipped with my friends, but all the other nerds in my class were like, ah, no, we'll be here. All the Gene Simmonses in my class were like, yeah, I'll be, I'll be here tomorrow. So I didn't even skip on fucking grad skip day, but I did skip to go get Meteora. And yeah, this album was just, uh, was hugely impactful. I mean, I was 17 when it came out. So, you know, Brian, I think your point is well made about, you know, the time that this came out. And I think I would say like corn was definitely, uh, like mad at my parents band for me, you know, where I was like feeling teenage emotions and whatever. Lincoln park is strange because, you know, we're going to get to the articles, but like when you read the articles and stuff, you know, Lincoln park talks a lot about, you know, kids responses to them about how you know they were a band like that for kids that like you know they wanted to appeal to the emotions of their listeners and pardon me and like things of that you know things of that nature like they they even talk about they wanted to keep the lyrics ambiguous but like emotional so that you know if you wanted to feel something to it you could feel something and Linkin Park was never really like that kind of band for me. Like I can remember Corn very much being a band like that for me. Um, and I can remember like one-off singles having that effect on me. You know, this was the burnt CD era. So I can remember having like a lot of new metal, emo adjacent kind of butt rock even at the time, 2003, you know, mixtapes that I made that would get me in my feelings Lincoln Park, I just think for me, it was always about the music. I just thought the songs fucking slapped. I don't, I don't really remember thinking of Lincoln Park as like a big time emotional band for me. And maybe it is because the emotions don't feel specific. Like I think with Jonathan Davis, right? It's like he was talking about being abused by his stepmother, which I didn't have step parents and I wasn't abused. So I couldn't connect to that. But for some reason, when the feeling like that was so specific, it connected me to my own problems, even though they weren't ex- that exact problem. Where for some reason, when Linkin Park is just kind of generally being like, oh, we're sad about something, you don't know what, like, I never connected to it in that way. I just liked the songs. I just thought the songs were fucking monster. And I, yeah, I just loved this album right from the first time I heard it. It feels like they're sad or pissed off about something, but they won't tell you like a person that in high school that would go to a party and sit in the corner and pout. Right. So like they wanted you to come <laughs> over and ask them what was wrong. Yeah. That's what they feel like to me. Cause it's a, it is very much like a, there's something wrong with me, but I ain't fucking telling you what's wrong with me. Okay. You're going to have to fucking divine it. Just, Hey, you, it, the thing that's wrong with me is wrong with you too. You know? That's probably yeah, it's society. It's, it's a condition. Yeah. It's a societal condition. It's affecting all of us. You know, I see you at this party looking all happy and like you're having a good time, but I know deep down you and I feel the same. 
Yeah, yeah, it is. It is very, uh, uh, it's very non-specific, and it is very much like I didn't. I, I I think I liked most of the songs. Actually, I think I'm gonna give this one a decent review. I just don't think that like it hits my emotion. It doesn't get that top top level for me. You know, uh, you know, I there were more songs on it than I knew than I thought. Well, yeah, five um, singles, five singles off this record. So I didn't know all the singles though. I only knew right. like two songs. I knew "Numb" and uh, "Somewhere I Belong." Oh, you probably know "Faint" as well. Faint. Let me look. I wouldn't know. Oh, it's that I, I can't feel the way. Oh, I did that before. one's good. I like that one. That's faint. Yeah. So yeah, well, it's also probably helps too because the songs gained even more ubiquity with Collision Course, right? Like because five of these songs or four of these songs or whatever end up on collision course with Jay-Z, which we have covered on the show. Would never um, that though back then. That was there was way less of a chance of me even hearing that than me. Well, but I'm but those were like singles though. Like if you yeah. were listening to rock radio at the time or whatever, you would have heard those songs. Like those were huge songs. Yeah. Like yeah, Numb yeah. Encore was a huge song. Wait, what? Numb Encore, like the, the oh, the, the oh yeah, 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 from the Numb slash Encore. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, there were a few because I at first I'm taking notes and I'm like, I don't know this first song. Don't stay. Never heard it, but it sounds like 2002 to 2004. Like they do a real or yeah, they do a really good job of being the actual sound of an era. Like they got a few years where they are exactly what everybody's listening to and doing. And they like that is one thing. They really defined that last gasp of new metal for sure. You know, they were the only band that defined it. I don't I can't think of anybody else that did well after them. I don't think. I mean, some of the butt rock bands or whatever, but nobody really after them did. Like no one knew you mean. Because yeah, like disturbed, you know, you know, disturbed and Slipknot, yes. and like those bands still had big albums after the new metal era. But but what you're saying is like not a new band kind of doing new metal, and they sounded anti- antiquated, kind of a bit uh, more than Lincoln Park sounded more modern and and new. The, those bands, those bands were all, you know. Uh, uh, doing what they had been doing, maybe updating the sound a little bit here and there every year, but they were all kind of doing what they were doing in 2000, 1999. And these guys were doing something completely new. Like this album definitely doesn't sound like anything else. Yeah. Which I think is weird. Like, I think it's a good point that you're making. It just is interesting for such a, for such a popular band that was, somewhat trend adjacent like hybrid theory comes out in 2000 you know and sort of the it's still not it's not quite the peak of the new metal era but i mean it's still pretty close like you know um significant others a year before that issues is out in 2000 like there's still big albums in the new metal era coming out at that time and for for this band to be the one that broke with a sound that yeah it is really unique like it feels like it feels like a lot of bands copied them or tried to copy them in the wake of like the popularity of hybrid theory and Meteora. And it still feels like even with all the bands that copied them, when you know a Linkin Park song, when you hear it, like it was just like, like no, no one could capture the sound 
in the way that they did. Like, and, and it's weird because like Lincoln Park pivots too. Like the next album after this comes out four years later, minutes to midnight, and it doesn't sound anything like hybrid theory and meteora. Like a lot of people, you know, what the main one criticism <laughs> pardon? They said that album had either one star or five stars. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it's weird because like you know, the big criticism of Meteora at the time was that it just sounded like another version of hybrid theory, like that, you know, if critics were panning it, it's because they were saying like, oh, this is just hybrid theory too, um, which I is, you know, we can get into that. I don't agree fully, but there's, yeah, it's definitely not a massive update on the sound. So it's interesting that you have these two albums that could almost be like a double album, but then the next album that comes out sounds nothing like it. Like it's almost like they kind of rejected their own, they they like rejected their own popularity or something. Like it was very odd that they did create this kind of unique sound that got very popular. And then they were like, ah, we're not, we're done with that also. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think people just get tired of doing shit, you know, and these albums do. This album sounds like somebody this sounds like new metal, but mixed with a little bit of that, you know, Prodigy was big at the time and stuff like that. That's what gets added to this that makes it different. Corn tried that with Skrillex. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, they were a little late or I guess a little early, depending on how you feel about the dubstep era. But yeah, um, it didn't work. But these guys somehow figured out how to mix all three rap, metal, and techno. And that's what this is to me. And uh, it's a cool sound. It, the only band I can think of that comes close is uh, Fear Factory. But even they, they go maybe a lot heavier, you know? Yeah, you would never mistake Fear Factory for Linkin Park. <laughs> no, you would never do that. But in Linkin Park's got like maybe a cleaner sound than them that's oh, the yeah. other thing this band has such a clean sound like the production is crazy yeah it's it, that was one thing that really got me to listening back to this uh yesterday for this review like um i mean i've heard this album literally hundreds of times but now that we review we you know we've reviewed so many albums and so many songs by so many different producers because that's the other thing about this era that's interesting is the budgets were high. So, you know, you do get these strange crossovers with big producers and, you know, Rick Rubin's involved with System of a Down. And, you know, there's all these kind of big guys that John Bryan's done some stuff in this space. Toby Wright, like it's very odd. Um, but this just, uh, you know, so we've I, I guess what I'm saying is like we've heard a lot of different production techniques and a lot of different ways that bands tackle production. It's interesting to me, this is only their second album. They're, they're co-producing it, like the band is co-producing it, which is usually a bad sign, especially early in a band's career. You're going, oh boy, the band's producing it? I don't know how I feel about that. And this thing, I mean, it sounds incredible. It sounds so good. And it was 20 years old, 21 years old now. And it sounds fresh. Like it, the, it it's the sound on here is just unbelievable. It sounds like a million bucks. Yeah. Like you're in the room with them, I guess, but not really. It sounds like it's very cleaned up too, you know, very good production. 
on this album. It better like that's one thing they have over a lot of these other bands is that like they must have hired like other other bands hired guys and then those guys would come in and fuck around with stuff or decide it needed to sound more raw or decided it needed to say you know what I mean? Like and these guys just they did like a, a, a almost prog rock production on this. <laughs> like you can hear everything. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's clear that they, you know, they knew what they wanted to sound like. And I, I think for me, like, you know, uh, as a Linkin Park fan, at least of these first two records, you know, the sort of complaint that this album sounds too much like hybrid theory, I, I think a big part of the reason why I never really felt that is because of the production. Like it does, the production on this record is miles ahead of hybrid theory and and hybrid theory is not a poorly produced album by any means it's not like it sounds like shit or something it just this sounds like they took 18 months in the studio to make it and everything pops everything's in the right place like to me you know it's 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 tough because i think bands with their sophomore albums they often get it's either they depart too much from the successful debut and people go, oh, okay, you're just railing against your successful debut. Boring, like whatever. We loved what you did before. Why aren't you doing more of that? But then bands that do more of that, everyone goes, yeah, well, okay, they just copied their debut album that was successful. And this to me feels like just the perfect amount of step forward where like if you're a hybrid theory fan, you're you're going to love this because it sounds like hybrid theory, but it's like enough of an update on the hybrid theory sound that I don't think it, for me, it never got bogged down in, Oh, this is too similar to hybrid theory. Like it just, it was like the, just that perfect step forward where you go like, okay, I'm, I'm all in on this band. Like I just, yeah, to me, I never felt that I never felt cheated or ripped off or that it was too much like hybrid theory because it just, yeah, it was the perfect step forward. I thought. It's not a life as peachy where it's like they didn't step forward at all. They just did another album. Yes. <laughs> it sounded like the first one. And then they stepped forward on the next album. These guys seem like they were taking very concrete steps to actually stay within what they were doing and also move forward a little bit. It's, it's uh, uh, definitely some of the songs on here are really cool. The, the fucking. I knew somewhere I belong, but I liked it. But um, there is a pattern that you hear when you listen to like four songs and it's like, okay, so a guy raps and then for the last word of the rap, a guy screams <laughs> and then they go back, then they go into the chorus and then a guy raps and then a guy screams and uh, it is very patterned writing, but Hey, you know, if it works, it works. And this, they don't seem like a band that was trying to do 50 different things anyway. So, and who cares if all the songs sound have a formula that it feels like to me. The formula was working. And it's also like, I mean, that, you know, yes, there is a little bit of that, but it's also kind of like that's what new metal was in a lot of cases. Like that is a lot like the way that a lot of people define new metal is the sort of combination of rapping and singing. And then I think with Linkin Park, I think it becomes just a little bit more stratified because it's two guys. So it becomes a little more obvious 
like, oh, every song is kind of rapping and then singing and then rapping and then singing because it was two dudes. They, they, they had different singers? sounding voices and sorry, Brian. Are they both just singers? Uh, yeah. Shinoda will play some like keys and stuff on stage or synth or whatever. Like he writes a lot of the music from what it seems like. He plays guitar uh, on, on a lot of it as well. But on stage though? Yeah, like in Somewhere I Belong, I think he plays guitar on it. Okay, okay. So, yeah, so I mean, like, you know, that to me is the... And Chester just sings. He doesn't play any yeah. instruments. But Well, I was wondering if they were both just singing because yeah. it does seem Some like... songs there are for sure. Like, sometimes you'll see live video of them and the two of them are not playing any instruments and they're both just singing. It seems um, like they're sharing the lyric. Right. Exactly. Like, that's what I mean. You know, it's. It, I think it's... I think you only notice that because it's two guys and they sound different yeah. and they both want to kind of, I'm sure in the writing process, it's, it was very diplomatic and like, okay, you're kind of rapping for 50% and I'm singing for 50% as opposed to if it was just one singer, they could kind of pick their spots as far as I'm, oh, I'm, you know, maybe I'll rap a little bit here. Maybe I'll sing a little bit here. Maybe this song has sung verses instead of rap verses, etc. Right. So yeah, I think that that's that's a big part of it. But uh, yeah, like I mean, the formula the formula worked. Yeah, in a bit. I a agree big with way. you. I agree with you. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think. Uh, I like all the singles. I will say, uh, those are the songs that I really enjoyed. The other songs, I was like, I could take it or leave it. If this was a four song album with all the singles, I knew I'd give it a one hundred percent grade. <laughs> But I've just found my shit saying like, I mean, I I did find myself saying this is heavier than I thought it was throughout the album. Like, I didn't think it was super heavy before when I listened to it. And I didn't think this was so guitar driven. Uh, for some reason, I had in my mind that Meteora was not like a guitar album that they had decided to move away from that and do something maybe heavy without like electric guitar. So I was pretty surprised at how much how much of that is in here too. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Cause I don't, I think we talked about this when we talked about hybrid theory, but I don't think of Lincoln park as like a musically impressive band. Like, I, I don't think do. any of the, I don't think any of the, like, I love the music, but I just mean like, I don't think of any of the players in Lincoln park as interesting. Like their drummer is not, it's just like straight up, not good like or, or whatever you can say not good or what drummers will say when someone plays almost exclusively simple parts he is solid uh you'll yeah. get uh, people say oh he's solid and and sure rob borden is solid or whatever but he technically if he has chops he's not showing them on any of these songs the drumming is very very basic. It seems like they weren't really into letting him do that either. No, exactly. The no, articles. they were definitely going for something for sure. Yeah, from the articles I read, it just felt like, yeah, play a couple things and then we'll loop it. You know, and it's like, uh, uh, so I don't think he was really putting a ton of effort in. No, when I just mean, like, I, I, I might have brought this up when we did the hybrid theory episode, but it was four years ago. So who gives a shit? But I remember the Meteora booklet was really funny because the the booklet was 40 pages yeah. and it was like, it has a ton of um, it has a ton of like notes and stuff like, so it, it, for every song they have the lyrics 
and then they and then they have notes from Mike Shinoda about the like recording of the song. And there's one of the songs where Mike Shinoda is talking about how they were so proud of Brad's drumming in the song. And like the drumming's like not even that good. And I was just like, okay, yeah, here we go. Uh, so yeah, this it's on easier to run. I have the lyric booklet up in front of me here. So easier to run. Uh, it says Rob. Sorry, I'm trying to get trying to see this on this fucking. Okay, yeah, Rob's playing cool. on this song is extraordinary. He found a way to make this complex drum pattern sound easy and tasteful. Plus, he recorded it in only a few takes. Tasteful. And oh, I was like, dude, this drum part is really easy to play. It's not like, oh, he took this complex drum pattern and he really fucking nailed it, you know? But it does kind of sound like, even in that quote, like exactly what you were saying, Brian. Like Mike Shinoda was like, yeah, you better you keep the drums basic back there, buddy. We don't want to, we don't want you getting crazy. Yeah, no, please don't. Actually, we would like you to fuck up so we can loop it with the fuck up and make it sound really cool. <laughs> That's one of the things he says in one of the articles where I was like, Jesus Christ. But uh, I find them very musically impressive. No, like, like I, I'm saying I like the music. There's just no, there's no standout players. Like yeah. to well, you. That's what I think is impressive is that it's just a bunch of guys doing their job, which is, uh, but they all do a really good job at it. They're all very, I don't know. That feels like there's like a precision that other bands don't have. Oh yeah, I mean it's the music is very measured. Like there's no doubts like, you know, when you cuz some of the quotes in the articles about the recording process are let's be honest, absolutely bananas. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the one example that comes up in multiple articles is Mike talks about how they did 40 different versions of the Somewhere I Belong chorus. That's so stupid. Uh, which sounds literally impossible, you know. And I think the the exact quote he has in one of the articles is something like, yeah, you know, other bands would get to like the 10th version and would say like, okay, we did it 10 times. Like we must have it now. And I remember showing it to people and they were like, this is really good. And we're just not going for really good. Like we're going for, we want every part on here to like blow your fucking mind or whatever. It's like, on the one hand, these are ridiculous things that you're saying and you're probably lying. But number two, I believe him also. Like when you listen to the music, it feels like every single thing on the album was painstakingly recorded and decided upon. And you're right, Brian, like it is musically impressive in that way. Like it, everything feels very deliberate on this record, which is worth applause. I just think that like when we, you know, we've reviewed so many of these of these new metal albums where there's at least one like musician in the band that really stands out, whether it's like really interesting or unique guitar work, whether it's like an absolute, you know, amazing drummer or even fieldy, like playing the bass. You know, we just talked about him in the single. We just, the single episode we just recorded, but like even that it's not, nobody's saying fieldy's an impress, a technically impressive player, but like he has such a unique sound that ends up kind of defining corns overall sound. Whereas like with Lincoln park, None of the musicianship stands out other than Chester's vocals. You know, I think Chester's probably the best new metal vocalist, or if he's not, he's it's like a two horse race or three horse race between him and Jonathan and Chino. Mm -hmm. But like 
He's so he's really good, but yeah, there's not a, and even Mike is a rapper. He's not a particularly proficient rapper. The raps are pretty basic. Um, you know, there's definitely an element of my name is Mike and I'm here to say like it doesn't he's not doing like technically proficient rapping, but they understood like they didn't need any of those things. Like it's the chemistry and this it's the sum of all of all the parts. That really makes it, which is great, but it is just interesting that this band got so big out of this genre that's kind of defined by really impressive musicians that, and you don't really see that, you know, in, in Lincoln park. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like took notes for like most of the songs, but like, I do want to say that breaking the habit and uh, what's the other breaking the habits, the one where I just wrote, this sucks. Um, <laughs> If you like this song, I'm happy for you, but I personally hate it. Worst song so far. Sounds like a video game song with lyrics. I like Breaking the Habit. I oh, think my God. I hated that song. I was so mad at it when it came on. Like, what are you guys doing? You know, we're we're rocking. And now we're not rocking anymore. We're doing something else. We're rapping, you know. Uh, but there were a few. Yeah. And, and also Session, where yeah. it's just an instrumental to play. Well, and especially, I think nobody's listening is the worst song on the record by like a lot. What did I write about that um, one? I that's the one with it. like the Japanese flute, where it's like basically a straight-ahead rap song. I called it whatever. It's whatever. Yeah, so it's like tough because you go from, you know, it's kind of really wall-to-wall bangers. I don't really like hit the floor. I think hit oh, the floor. Oh God, is just- dude! My note for hit the floor is great opening riff. Who is this guy rapping about? The chorus of this is so good. Favorite song so far. This is the first time I've said this shit is heavy. Still, have only ever heard one of these songs. I think. I, like I think like. I don't hate hit the floor, but I would say of that kind of like opening like nine songs, that's the one I like the least. But. Ooh. It doesn't anyway, any way you want to cut it. It's a very impressive first like 10 songs. Then nobody's listening is pretty weak. And then they follow it up with a Joseph Hahn instrumental. And you're like, oh, okay, really? We've lost all the momentum. But then they end with numb, which is like probably their most iconic song. And it yeah. fucking rocks. And you're like, this is the sequencing is so weird. Like if they just chopped out nobody's listening in session, now you're talking about a 31 minute album that is just like wall to wall slammers. Like I just, yeah, the, the inclusion of those two is odd. I know that they're like, you know, we see this from a lot of these new metal bands that have a DJ where they want to, they want to give the DJ a little bit of time to cook, but uh, I think they also want a song that they can play where they all kind of get to get a drink of water and stuff like that (laughs) back on stage or a song they can play before they come out on stage. And then the song ends and they go into one of their real songs. Like that's what these instrumentals actually end up being like. Yeah, but I don't need it on the fucking record, but just let them do it live. I I don't need to hear it. I agree, but I would also make the argument on the other side that it's like, well, maybe people see through it a little less. It'll seem a little less like a song written for this if it's on the album, you know? Right. No, I I guess so. I understand in a way, but I also just, I would rather not hear it. Yeah, I don't need any instrument. (laughs) I don't need any of these albums, except for Porno Creep. I need that. But other than that, Nothing else. <laughs> so, so Brian, you know, uh, this, this album for me, like I said, kind of life changing uh, or not life changing, but you know, 
a, a huge album for me in the course of my life. I like basically all these songs. You know, I you were pretty critical of Hybrid Theory. It seems you're a little less critical of this one. Like, what were your what were your sort of like really standout songs that you loved on this? You already talked about Hit the Floor. What other songs were like really grabbing you on this list? Like the ones I knew. I, and like one of the songs by them that grabbed me for, for you know, is, is definitely, definitely uh, faint. Like I love that song. And I loved that song before we did this. Like, I just like, I think that's their best chorus. I think that's the best Linkin Park song. Like that's everything working exactly the way it's supposed to work. You know what I mean? So that's like my, the standout for me, which is, I know hacky because it's a single, but yeah, I mean, I don't think there were any songs I hated other than maybe breaking the habit. I didn't take any notes for from the inside. So I'm guessing it was unremarkable. Yeah. It's, it's not like, it's pretty decent. It was a single actually from the inside, but it was like the worst performing of the singles. Uh, it was the only one that didn't, uh, appear on the billboard hot 100. So maybe the universe agreed with you, but yeah, I, I thought, I, I think from the inside is decent, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't hit in the way that some of the other tracks on here hit. And, uh, yeah, I agree. Like, I mean, faint is faint is so good. I mean, really, uh, nothing more I have to add to what you said about that. I think numb is amazing. My, my favorite, probably uh, like non single song is figure. Oh, nine really love that track. I think it just uh, again, does everything you want a Lincoln park song to do. And I remember when I first listened to the album, cause I guess on the day it came out somewhere I belong probably would have been the only single out at that time. Um, and I remember Back in the day, me and my friends used to do this, and I don't know if you did too, Brian, but when we early, when we heard an album early, we would guess at like what our favorite album cut would end up being, because you can always usually kind of tell like what the singles are going to be. So it's sort of like, okay, let's guess what the singles are, and let's guess at like long term, what is our sort of favorite album cut going to be? And I remember always thinking that Figure 09 was probably never going to be a single uh, but would be a song that I would that I would love. Yeah, I didn't do that, but you know, I I in the end, it doesn't, it doesn't even matter. In the end, you will always pick an album cut as your favorite song on an album that you like. That's the cool thing to do, just because you've never heard. Well, and it's also because you haven't heard it ten million times. You know. Yeah, you hear it on your own terms. You're never just like hearing it out in public. You know. Yes, yes, you're not going to hear it at karaoke or whatever. <laughs> No, yeah, God, oh God forbid. Uh, Lincoln Park feels like a really hard karaoke band. Chester's such a such a good singer, and he's in a tough range. Yeah, and you have to be able to rap okay. Like you, uh, like yeah. I've always been pretty good at rapping, and I just sort of always felt like, and I don't mean like <laughs> I was doing rap battles, or I'm not like a fucking white guy doing King of the Dot or whatever. But like, um, I just mean like as far as like rapping along to songs, like I've always been good at, you know, I can rap along to songs, no problem. I can remember a lot of the lyrics and I can rap along and it's easy for me. But I didn't realize that that's like not a skill that a lot of people have. Like a lot of people, their brains just like do not work in like a way where they can rap along to songs. And so I feel like that also makes Linkin Park a little bit of a tougher karaoke because Chester's really a tough voice to emulate. And 
wrapping along uh, at the same time, maybe, I guess, not easy. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other songs, I'm looking at them. I don't, I mean, I don't see any that, like, a lot of my notes are about how they sound like Deftones, around the fur era Deftones, which is a total fucking compliment from me. Uh, and Minerva. I can't believe this was made before <laughs> Minerva, because there's a song in here that I just wrote, Minerva Ass Riff. So maybe Deftones ripped them off. Yeah, they ripped them off. Yeah, this this came out in March 03, and uh, Deftones self-titled was May 03. So. Yeah, they probably were like, they heard the song. <laughs> we're going to do this before the Deftones album comes yeah. out. Now, I just wanted to say, uh, before we kind of get into the articles and everything, uh, before we were recording, Dan, you were talking about being 11 uh, when this album came out and that this was a huge record for you and that you met Linkin Park. Uh, so, yeah, I'm curious from that perspective, because Brian has called Linkin Park a band for children. They are. Uh, <laughs> what what was hitting you about this? If you can, you, if you remember, like when you were 11, like what did you love about Linkin Park at that age? I mean, I was just into new metal in general at at that point this when did this come out was it 2003 this is 03 yeah okay so i might have been like 12 then okay. or maybe just about to turn but yeah i don't know i just i like the riffs dude <laughs> fuck yeah dude all right now did you have because i feel like this is you know brian has already kind of said that lincoln park weren't cool to him but like i definitely feel like lincoln park was almost maybe the first new metal band you had to pretend you didn't like because they, they definitely got, you know, like we all went through the phase where we said corn and limp biscuit were bad and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But that came in like the later aughts. I feel like it felt like Lincoln Park. You kind of had to give up on in like oh four oh five just because they had that sort of like wussy reputation or whatever. Can you remember that also? Yeah, I mean, I think I could sense even then that they were like better songwriters just objectively, but they were also lamer objectively. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, it's just they're dorks. As we were saying at the beginning, yeah. they're a bunch of fucking dorks. You know, they're like the they're like the comedian that comes out the very first time and has their book and their tape, their their fucking recorder and all that stuff, and they're like really like haven't even been on stage once, and they're they're acting like they're Louis C.K. working out new material or something. I don't know why I picked him of all of the comedians that they could possibly be, but they just seem like tryhards, which isn't the worst thing in the world. You know, it's just, that's what they are. They try very hard. I feel like if you're, well, it's very funny because one of the articles, uh, the spin profile on them, the title of it is literally, uh, how to succeed in rock and roll by really, really, really trying, and the which funny is thing a great is, article title. And the funny thing is, in the end, they know it doesn't even matter. You know, they personally know that. Trying hard. <laughs> a little song lyric joke for y'all that got zero. Well, because I just, I just, I just did that like two minutes ago. I did I know, the exact same riff. I had to do it again. <laughs> But no, you're right, though. Like it it genuinely uh, I, it's weird because I wonder in what way they kind of contributed to like, I, I feel like rock and roll used to be about like, I just want my rock and roll guys to be rock stars. And I want them to be hard partying guys that are like, 
you know, sleeping with groupies and doing drugs and getting drunk yeah. every night. And then there was this turn at some point where it was also okay to be like a loser, like rock and roll guy where you're just like, yeah, I'm not really like a rock and roll guy. I just kind of like this music. I don't know if Linkin Park started that or what, but definitely maybe they did. I don't know. I try to like think of like who, what rock bands would have been like so earnest in the press about like, yeah, we, we don't do anything. We're big ass losers. Like we don't curse. Cares? That's the thing that drove me nuts about them is we don't curse. It's like, God damn it, guys. Come on. You know? <laughs> We're all adults here. We've all heard cussing. Well, no, I guess it was a lot of kids. I think that was the whole point. They wanted to be a band that kids listen to, I guess. Fair enough. All right. Well, we can get to the articles. Speaking of those, because, yeah, uh, Linkin Park, one fun part about doing Linkin Park is there are some massive uh, outlets that cover them and and some big profiles of this band around the time period. Uh, Brian, do you want to kick us off with uh, with something? Can I just say that MTV... Dot com article. I said nothing super remarkable. These are some extremely boring dorks. <laughs> That's the, uh, really the MTV article is uh, it's called inconspicuously huge. Uh, it was written by John Wiederhorn uh, and it came out in uh, April of 2003. So shortly after Meteora uh, came out, it's just it's one of those things where it's guys that are rock stars and know they're rock stars, but aren't really going to say I'm a rock star, which I think is how I would have ended up too. You know what I mean? It just, it's uncomfortable to call yourself something like that, I guess. And, uh, but yeah, I, and then I went to Rolling Stone. You got, Oh, I do have some quotes from the MTV, uh, one, uh, that kind of back up what you were saying. I think it's also that like, they didn't dress or look like rock stars either. Like, I think, you know, there is that element of at the time, if you saw Chester in public, you would have known it was Chester. Like he either had bleach blonde hair or dyed like flame red hair. He had the labrette piercing, like all that stuff. And so, you know, I think he was trying to be, or at least a little bit like I'm a rock star, like pay attention to me. I'm a rock star. And the other guys are all just, they dressed kind of like frumpy and like the, the drummer always wore a backwards hat, which is so lame. And then the one guitar player wore giant headphones on stage, which was also fucking lame. Dude, and I like, don't even know what the other guys look like. They look, they look like guys that work at a gas station. Like they don't look like remarkable dudes at all. Like they clearly were trying to look like that. But anyway, these are the quotes from MTV that kind of back up what you were saying. We're not doing this to be stars, Shinoda shrugged. We're just normal people behind all those lights. Uh, And then Rob Borden adds, people always want to find something exciting about us. But to be honest, we're pretty boring, added Borden, shifting the position of his backwards black baseball cap. Again, he's always wearing a backwards hat. People wouldn't be too excited to come backstage and hang out with us. We don't party or anything. We just play Xbox and we're pretty mellow. (laughs) When we play a show for 20,000 people, that's the highlight for the night. You can't go backstage after that and try to top it. So we just wait until the next show. And I'll say, I don't know if I've ever felt more seen by a quote yeah. in this entire thing. Not that I am a rock star by any means at all, but like that is totally how I feel. Like if I do a comedy show and I crush it and it's a and it's just like I'm in a great place, I just want to go back to the hotel and like 
mm-hmm. eat eat a snack, uh, you know, and like eat some ice cream and chill in my hotel room by myself and be like, that was a fun, that was a fun show. I felt very, very seen by that quote. Um, and then the only other thing I picked out of that MTV article was this, this just made me laugh and also kind of speaks to their, their lyric writing. We were talking about earlier, Chester Bennington said, we don't talk about situations. We talk about the emotions behind the situations. Mike and I are two different people, so we can't sing about the same things, but we both know about frustration and anger and loneliness and love and happiness, and we can relate on that level. Uh, Which, again, I I think is sort of interesting that they obviously deliberately chose not to talk about specific life events. But then Rob Borden had a really good quote here that I'm surprised you didn't pick out, Brian, because I thought this was a very Brian quote. Borden says, I think that's a reason we have a really diverse fan base. There can be a 12-year-old kid at school that's frustrated doing his homework. And someone else who's 40 who has been fired from a job or something. Which I really want to... I really, really, really want a short film on the 40-year-old guy who gets fired from his job and puts on Meteora to cope with the yeah. emotions. Insane. <laughs> Insane thing to say. But, you know, whatever. What so, can you do? You, we, we love him. Uh, so, yeah. So, the Rolling Stone article, this is a, an interview with Chester Bennington. Uh, this was done by Jenny Aliskew, who we've seen show up on this show multiple times before. It's from June 12th, 2003. And uh, the headline is Lincoln Park's Chester Bennington on kids touring and summer vacations. So the last article, the MTV article, spent so much time talking about how they don't really hang out with anybody but each other. They're really good friends. This article starts out. uh, He's being Chester's being asked why they're doing summer sanitarium. He goes, what do you mean? Says singer Chester Bennington. If we weren't doing summer sanitarium, we'd be on our own tour to reward himself for all his hard work. Bennington recently started leasing his very own tour bus separate from the ones his bandmates ride. So he can bring his wife, Samantha and their one-year-old son on the road. I'm spoiled. Now he admits sometimes when Samantha isn't with me, the guys will be like, why don't you stay on our bus? And I'm like, you guys sleep in bunks on my bus. I have a real bedroom in my own bathroom and uh so i like that i like reading those two articles in a row right right well and the funny part is they mention in another one of the articles that uh they originally chester almost always had his own bus it sounds like from the time that they could afford buses and in the early days of the band it was because he partied and they didn't so they were like, they didn't want Chester like coming on the bus in the middle of the night drunk and like waking them up basically. So they were like, Chester, you have your own bus. And then that way, if you want to party after the show or you come to bed late, you can do whatever you want. So it's funny that it then, I don't know if it actually flipped to like, oh, I can bring my wife and I can bring my kid on the road. Or if like <laughs> he's just kind of lying and he has his own bus because he, has a drinking problem. I don't know, but yeah, I would have my own bus Chester. So I agree with you. I would love oh, to have my own bus. Me too. No question. <laughs> Even if I was just going on vacation with my family, I'd like to have my own bus. Now, did you have anything else from this Rolling Stone one, Brian? Cause I got a couple here. 
Summer Sanitarium pairs you guys with Limp Biscuit. Now, didn't you have some kind of beef? Yes. We never had a beef, but in the beginning, we were lumped in with bands like Crazy Town. I think because we were associated with that, Limp Biscuit didn't want to be associated with us. One of the guys, probably West Borland, and the band said, "I'd rather stab myself in the neck with a screwdriver than listen to Lincoln Park." Then one day, then one time, they got to watch us play. Afterward, the guy who made the comment said he was sorry for talking shit about us. That kind of inspired us. Anybody who has said anything derogatory to say we just say if you've listened to our records and seen us play and you still think we suck more power to you more power to you man west borland <laughs> that's a hundred percent a west for borland. sure it's west borland yeah i mean west borland doesn't even like his own music so yeah. I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and guess he didn't like uh the even poppier version of the music that he didn't like making mm-hmm. uh yeah no question about that i also do like the idea of like chester saying to someone backstage like just watch us play man just watch us play man (laughs) oh you think we suck just watch us play man you'll 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 change your mind dude just watch just fucking just come watch us play man um the only other thing i had from this rolling stone quote which i think i i'm not a drug guy obviously but this quote seemed fucking bananas to me and brian you can maybe back me up on this but uh the uh, Jenny asks, do you worry about your son seeing the other bands? Oh, no, sorry. What did you do in the summer as a kid? And he said, well, between 13 and 15 is when I discovered drugs. I had a group of friends and they were the cooler kids who would let me hang out with them. I did so much partying that I kind of earned respect. I would see everybody because I was going to all these concerts. I'd load up on whatever I wanted to play with that night whether it was 10 hits of acid or okay. a liter of vodka, and I'd run around with my friends, we'd trip out and drive home. Now, again, I'm not a drug guy, Brian, but can you confirm like 10 hits of acid, you'd be dead, correct? Yeah. Like that is- no, that's the thing about acid is that it won't kill you. Okay. Uh, well, and I know whatever. people that took 10 strips for sure. Like my brother would take a 10 strip. I- I'd probably take three. oh my god like 10 seems insane to me yeah i mean he would be way out of it you know what (laughs) i mean like but yeah i know people who have popped 10 hits acid it's more of a thing it is more of a thing that a teenager would do it's not something like i don't think anybody in their fucking 30s would ever take 10 hits acid they'd probably just go with like one or two that'll do the trick you know right right it'll sometimes get, it'll get you where you want to go sometimes when you're on acid though you have bad judgment and you'll just keep saying like i should just take one more you know right. what i mean i'll just take one more and then you know so it's similar to like an edible you yeah know, where you're like oh this shit hasn't even kicked in yet yeah i feel you um so yeah that one stuck out from the rolling stone to me uh we've got a couple more here brian do you got what else you got I got Vulture. Yeah, so this was a retrospective. Uh, This one is from uh, Mike Shinoda, uh, or an interview with Mike Shinoda, rather, from uh, from Vulture. Uh, It's by Craig Jenkins. It's from April 3rd, 2023. Headline, We Were Obsessed. Linkin Park's Mike Shinoda didn't plan to revisit the band's 2003 album, Meteora, until he found a lost demo. Um, and so, yeah, this is, uh, if you're unaware, they released a 20th anniversary edition of Meteora last year. 
with a bunch of bonus tracks that had never been released before, some live bootlegs. They did this whole big package. So Mike Shinoda did a bunch of interviews about it, and this is one of them. It's so wild to look back at all the hemming and hawing over what becomes one of the best-selling records of the entire year. Here's what I assume they thought. Our thing, the combination of elements, was too esoteric. We love DJ Sa- Shadow, Fatboy Slim, Moby, Aphex Twin, and Portishead. I'm missing a ton, the Prodigy. With that stuff in the music, labels were like, who's going to listen? And then on top of it, we were more introspective. What we didn't like about what was going on in the scene was that it was very frat rock. It was toxic masculinity. We didn't know the term yet. We just didn't like how everything was about tough guy shit and we didn't identify with tough guy shit. So nobody wanted to sign us because we didn't fit. They couldn't see us on stage. Somebody said to me, if you guys were to open up a show with Kid Rock or Limp Bizkit, you'd get beat up. <laughs> it was a joke, right? But probably true. At least for me, I would have gotten beat up. Chester wouldn't have gotten beat up. He'd fuck somebody up too. So I'm not afraid of Chester. I'll tell you that. Right? I mean, now he's dead, but I wouldn't have been afraid of him in 20 fucking 2002 for sure. Um, and I had, uh, so coming off the hybrid theory tour here in your mid. So like, but why did you, what was, what did you like about that quote? Just that Chester, you think you could be, have beaten up well, Chester. And I also like that. They're like, I don't know. They say they're not into tough guy shit, and I was kind of goofing about the lyric, I won't be ignored, where it's like, dude, the whole rest of this album is you being a part of my French, a pussy. Like, most (laughs) of the (laughs) And then you're doing, I won't be ignored. I'll bet you'd be ignored easily. So that that was, like, really fun for me to to read. And, uh, you know... I also like I'm talking about tough guy shit. It's just there's something about that. And right. they would have got beat up opening for Kid Rock or Limp Biscuit, which Well, and I thought it was interesting because I remember I read that quote and I was like, okay, like some of it was frat rock, but a lot of it was kind of like railing against frat rock, and that is why those bands got so popular. And then it was very funny in the very next answer, he says, you know, uh None of those he's talking about Depeche Mode, Nine Inch Nails. I was listening to a lot of U2. None of those are like, hey, I'm going to kick your ass songs. Those are all, oh, I got my ass kicked. This isn't fair or this feels bad or maybe it's my fault. We weren't hearing those emotions as much in music that was out there. And when we did hear it, I liked what I was hearing. I should give groups like Deftones and Korn more credit. They were doing that. I liked how Jonathan Davis was just an open book putting all of his most fucked up stuff out there right in the lyrics. And I thought that was good because when I first read that quote, I was like, dude, like Korn was definitely railing against frat rock. I'm glad the next question he kind of caught himself on that. I, I also like there was an element of look kids are into this and I wish they weren't to the coverage in that area. Our review in Rolling Stone was one paragraph, and I think they called us kids with hot pink nail polish on our nine-inch nails. Sharon Osbourne said the only reason we're including these bands on OzFest, and she meant us and Papa Roach and some others, is for the girls. The day before we played our first show of OzFest, and she's already shit-talking us. First of all, I mean, having girls is like the should be the dream of mm. like every band. You know, that's what you you cannot sell. 16 million copies of an album if girls don't like it i mean it's just not possible yeah 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 and also like i would rather have more women in my audience than a bunch of fucking meathead men you know what i mean and i do like i like the idea of sharon osborne just saying they're for the girls that's that's actually the girls band yeah that's what we're bringing them on ozfest so girls come to ozfest yeah (laughs) 
Yeah, pretty good. Um, yeah, there was some other stuff in here. I mean, this is actually a really good interview. I mean, I think Mike Shinoda is a pretty, uh, you know, he's a pretty smart guy. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was just like, he definitely does. He likes to give himself credit on hip hop stuff that I find is like really funny. Yeah, uh, he's like Fred. Yeah, totally. Respect. Like the interviewer is asking him about his synth collection and he says, uh, on top of it all, getting outside of the nerdiness of it, something we didn't like about what was going on in music at the time was that people were experimenting with each other's genres, but they didn't always love the genre. We loved the genres we were playing with. We were obsessed and we went deep. If I was going to do a hip hop thing, if I was going to reference it, it wouldn't be popular shit. I'd come in the studio and be like, oh man, there's this track by Smooth the Hustler and Trigga the Gambler. Oh, you got to hear this, which... It it does sound like he's just making those rappers yeah, up. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure they're real, but it's just like very funny. Uh, and then he also mentions that Don Gilmore, who they co-produced the album with, gave him no feedback on the hip hop stuff. And that's like, okay, to me, that's like a little far. Like I, I was just such a, be- I was so beyond what, you know, Don Gilmore was capable of. Like he says, the unspoken Sometimes spoken agreement between me and Don Gilmore was that he was in charge of the rock aesthetic. I gave him feedback on it, but he would not give me feedback on the hip hop that was going on the record. He was like, just so we're clear, Mike, you are in charge of making sure the hip hop is pitch perfect on this thing. I won't know. And I was just like, okay, so I've never heard rap before. Guy yeah. that works in a music business. I don't know. I yeah, mean, he's a very famous producer. Yeah. I don't, Mike, you seem to know a lot about this hip hop stuff. I'm yeah. just going to trust you on that. I just have one more from the next art, the spin article. Oh yeah. Again, yes. great, really great cover story. Uh, this is from uh, 2003. Uh, it was written by Alex Papademus and the, uh, the cover was how to succeed in rock and roll by really, really, really trying. And then the sub headline was the biggest band on the planet wants to save your life again. When when Shinoda talks about Lincoln Park's music, it's in the passionate but sober terms of a young CEO. <laughs> when asked which bands inspired him, he names Run DMC and the Beastie Boys and U2 and the Police. Perfect. Raucous rap metal and life-affirming messianic arena rock sweep. Bennington cites Depeche Mode and the Smiths, Misfits, who sang about their misfits, about being freaked out by their bodies and their hearts. It was Bennington who told an interviewer early on in the band's career that he had been abused as a child and saw many of the journalists who wrote about the band interpret their lyrics through that prism. So that is uh, uh, that that is like one of those things that's like, I don't know. That's very corn like to me, which obviously he was also abused. You know what I mean? So it is funny because the reason I cut that out is because they do talk about how this band gets shit for, uh, you know, having kids like them, but they are like speaking to a very real thing that isn't spoken about enough. It's me being nice to Lincoln Park. And I, I love that, Brian. I mean, I feel like I, this, this whole podcast has been sort of, rehabbing your relationship to Lincoln park. And I, you know, I feel like if nothing else comes out of doing almost five years of the POD cast, that that's the top thing for me. Yeah. I had a couple things from the spin. Uh, I just like this idea of Jacoby Shaddix. Oh yeah. Kind of backing up that they were all losers. 
they're really serious guys who keep control of their shit, says fellow Ozfester Jacoby Shaddix of Papa Roach. I made good friends with Chester on tour. He's a punk kid like me from a fucked up small town. I'd have to sneak him away to go party. The other guys in the band would be like, keep it straight, but I'd pull him away. Uh, which I like the idea of him trying to corrupt Chester and, yeah. uh, you know, bringing him away, which I thought was really great. And then this is, again, I felt very, very seen by this quote from, from Mike Shinoda. And he says, uh, he says, uh, well, this is again, just a good glimpse of their life on Ozfest. Lincoln, I'm just imagining them on Ozfest with like all these other bands like partying. It's like a basically yeah. like a traveling road show for 60 days. These bands are going fucking wild. And this is Lincoln Park. Lincoln Park began hammering out Meteora during Ozfest 2001. After shows between Halo tournaments, they would lay down riffs and melodies and half-finished songs on the Pro Tools digital recording rigs they travel with. They convinced us that we should have a studio on our tour bus, says Papa Roach's Shaddix. Shinoda insists that Lincoln Park had a lot of fun while rolling with Ozzy's dark caravan, but it's clear that he and his bandmates view the extracurricular aspects of rock, the drinking, the groupies, the dwarf tossing as a necessary evil. Shinoda says, even when I was in high school, parties were like, everything is just so played out. You go, people are drinking, people hook up. You talk to the same people who say the same stupid crap. It's boring. And rather than do that, I could go hang out with my friends and write a new song. And who knows what that's going to be like. And I was just like the idea that he was not going to parties because writing a song was more exciting than a party. I feel I felt very seen. And also it is very funny as a rock star at the height of his powers to be talking like that. I mean, partying sucks. He's right. Oh, he's totally right. I'm going to parties and stuff. They're the worst. I like just being normal when I'm hanging out and just sitting down with the wife. If I get a little fucked up, I get a little fucked up, you know? But uh, yeah, I, I hate parties for the same reason. Very much. I am always so relieved when we don't get invited to something. Oh my God. Me too. Um, and then, yeah. And then just, this is the last one from this one. It's just a really good insight into their, uh, writing process and and just how specific they were about the way things were done. Back home, they started arranging and rearranging, re-recording, micromanaging. Lincoln Park never jam. There's something to be said for doing it that way, Phoenix says, but for us, it's just counterproductive. Instead, they come up with ideas alone or in pairs. The collaboration begins in the studio where ideas are tweaked and focus grouped until everybody's satisfied. If one's if one person's not happy, Shinoda says, you got to go back and start over. The fact that Meteora sounds like an actual rock band playing together in an actual room is ironically the product of endless clicking and dragging, endless discussion, the kind of ego-destroyingly, brain-meltingly democratic collaboration you'd think would drive even the closest-knit group of musicians utterly batshit. And so, yeah, the uh, again, Mike Shinoda talked about that in another one of the articles where he would just sit down with Chester or he would sit down with uh, Brad Delson or he would sit down with Phoenix and the two of them would write something, bring it back to the group. And then the group goes, we don't like that. And then it's just turfed. And it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I like their recording process. I always like, hey, let's just go separate and then come back and do funny stuff. That's like how I've always felt about prep 
too. It's like, you know, you got to talk a little bit, but I think it's so much, and it's different for music than it is for podcasting, but I think it's so much more fun for each person to prep and then come in and, you know, give what they like. So I see, I see you Lincoln park and I like the way you uh, uh, record. Shout out. And then there's this last one. I just have one piece from this one. It's from the guardian from March, 2003 written by Siobhan Grogan. And uh, I love we've we've had these quotes before where I love when bands get huge and then talk about how they they weren't like nobody wanted to sign them. They love uh, nobody cared about us, you know, and this quote, I mean, this is such a spectacular lie from Chester Bennington, and I I just love it so much. Um, So it starts with Mike Shinoda. We had the anti buzz about us. Shinoda remembers. Bennington, sorry, before that, Siobhan writes, typically the music industry was the last to catch on to the phenomenon that still amuses the band today. They're not bitter, they say, but it certainly makes the success sweeter. We had the anti-buzz about us, Shinoda remembers. Bennington laughs. People would say, oh, you're going to see them? Good luck. What a way to waste a lunch hour. But I didn't care if we didn't get signed because that just meant all those people in the record business didn't know what the hell they were doing and we didn't need those idiots. All I knew is that I would buy our record in a heartbeat. Well, guess what, Chester? You did need at some point a record label to sign you. Whether you like your own album or not, it is kind of important. And then this quote, just a beautiful, beautiful lie. Uh, in some cases, says Bennington, they would actually call and say, we wouldn't sign you guys for a fucking million dollars. Yeah. They didn't ghost them. They, <laughs> they, were yeah, calling they didn't ghost. They called you and said, yeah, hey, we came and saw your show. We're not signing you. And by the way, you couldn't pay us a million dollars to sign you. No <laughs> one on planet Earth did that to Lincoln Park. And even if that did happen, they would not be calling the band directly to be telling them that like, it's just so we wouldn't sign you for a fucking million dollars. Great. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Big lies in that article. Big it's lies. Big, big lies. Article. God, I love a big lie. I love yeah. a big lie about an underdog story. One of my favorite things. Okay, Brian, before we get to the end of the show, uh, we do need to cap this off with our tweet defense. If this is your first time listening to the show, this is how we review the album. It's if someone were to tweet at you that this album sucks, uh, it's how many tweets you would do in order to defend it. Brian, where are you at with this one? Again, I'm back on the one to 10 and I'm going to give it a seven. It's wow, but it's not perfect. You are like Lincoln Park pill, dude. We uh, oh, this no. has been this has been like a lifelong dream of mine. And by lifelong, I mean like six years ago when yes. I first met you. I love that. Wow. Seven. Okay. Um, I mean, this is really, yeah, like really one of the more important albums in my life. Uh, I've listened to it more than almost every other album I've ever listened to. So I think for me, I'm not on any kind of 10 point scale. I'm just still on the original scale in my mind that I've gone with. I'm going, I'm going nine. All right. I would go nine tweets to defend this album. It's uh, yeah, it's really great. I wish it was two songs shorter, but uh, yeah, tremendous, tremendous. What are you going to do? do? Well, it's also funny because some of the articles they talked about deciding what to, they weren't even going to do a 20th anniversary yeah. Uh, and then Mike Shinoda had all these songs on a hard drive. And in his mind, he was like, oh, these songs aren't shit. 
uh, there's no way we're going to release them. And then he heard one of their unreleased songs and he was like, wait a minute, that was actually pretty good. Um, and he said that was going to be the 13th song if they decided to make the album 13 songs long. And he was like, but then we didn't, we just cut it at 12. And I was like, dude, you should have cut nobody's listening. And that song should have been on the record. It would have yeah. been better. Uh, yeah. It's lost is that single and it's really good. Uh, but yeah, anyway, um, that's, that's what I would do. That's what that's, I, I would go nine tweets, beautiful, beautiful album. Uh, so glad to finally get to talk about it on the show. It's been in the poll many times. Thrilled that we got it done. Uh, before we get to the challenge, I just want to remind you that if you want to support the show, if you love the POD cast, you can head on over to patreon.com slash the POD cast. That's cast with a K like the band corn $4 a month gets you access to three bonus episodes every single month. We also have an exclusive discord. We have merch discounts over there. By the way, if you want to check out our merch, we have some amazing merch that was designed by young and sick at the POD cast.cool. Uh, so you can check that all out there. Um, and also if you want to, uh, have us cover an album we've never covered on the show, you can pay us to do that on our Patreon. We, uh, we book our bonus episodes in advance. They're all listener decided. So you can head on over to the Patreon, check out those tiers. You can have us listen to a song or you can have us listen to an entire album. Last month we reviewed United States of horror by horror. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And you also, as soon as you donate to our Patreon, you get access to our entire back catalog. So if you're frustrated with these only coming out once a month, we have oh, well over 100 episodes available on our Patreon. So check that out, patreon.com slash the POD cast. Okay, Brian, we are here at the challenge. Uh, if you're new to the show, every month, Brian and I challenge ourselves to do something related to the album in question. Last month, uh, we were re rewriting click, click, boom uh, to be uh, a different uh, set of three words. And we had to sing it like Josie Scott. Brian went with fart, oops, poop. And I went with clit, clit, boobs. Uh, really, it was a high watermark for intelligence on our show. Uh, but I actually won that challenge pretty convincingly. Ah. I guess uh, people oh. really connected with the clit, clit, boobs. Dirty minds. Uh, I actually, actually got a DM right after that episode came out where a guy was like me and my friends used to yell out in the car, clit, clit boobs. And when you said that, I felt like so seen. And I was like, hell yeah, dude. Yeah, it was good. It was good. That uh, was so that brings us, Brian, we're dead tied. I have 25 wins. You have 25 wins and we have two ties. Uh, so this month, uh, where we were inspired by the Meteora album booklet, 40 pages of curated content from Mike Shinoda and oh, and from the team. Uh, and uh, and so yeah, we're going to, I guess, sort of de facto write our own uh album booklet blurb for uh for the POD cast essentially. Yeah. So, Brian, we'll start with you. What is your what's your blurb? So, I wanted to call the podcast Corn Pod and uh have it sound like the first corn album like a kind of like the production of that album and john said no and i'm really glad he did and we moved on to having good sound <laughs> was the best i could do there i wanted to call it corn pod <laughs> yeah i wanted to call it corn pod but instead we did he john said pod pod cast and i was like oh that's two bands yeah, I I uh I really wanted to tap into the Mike sort of giving uh sort of giving Brad or Rob a compliment on his ba very basic drumming. So 
Um, yeah, you know, really when I'm thinking about the Meteora episode of the POD cast, I'm just really proud of Brian for how he has embraced Lincoln Park. Uh, you know, when we started this project together, he told me that Lincoln Park was not a band he respected, uh, that him and his friends would actively trash them. You know, and I think now that he's, you know, we're all getting older, right? And I think now that he's getting older, um, it's really obvious to me that um, he's maturing as well. And the fact that he's grown into um, not only respecting Linkin Park, but liking them as well, uh, <laughs> it really means, uh, it means a lot to me. And I think it means a lot to the listeners of this podcast. And I'm just really proud of what he was able to do on this episode. I'm proud. I'm, I thank you for being proud of me, everybody. Uh, I just like the album. I don't like the band. So, <laughs> so there you go. You can vote on the challenge over on our Twitter. It's twitter.com slash the POD underscore cast again, cast with a K like the band corn. You can also vote on what album we cover next month. We've been putting the polls up on our Patreon, but the link to that will go up on our Twitter. You do not need to be uh, a paid member of our Patreon to vote in the polls. Uh, But yeah, if you're new to the show, every month, Brian and I each put up two albums in the poll, and then you, the listener, decide which of those four albums that we listen to on next month's episode. Brian, which two albums are you putting up in the poll this month? Again, I'm on a mission. (laughs) I had two albums that I'm going to put in. Soulfly, self-titled. Been on there a million times. Oh, my God. You, this is like three months in a row. You've put I know. Soulfly and then it. the other one is Deadsy, Commencement. Oh, I said Deadsy. it right. Deadsy, Commencement. Deadsy. Those okay. are the two albums. I feel I like it. I don't know anything about Deadsy, so I love Me that. Me neither. It's uh, Cher's uh, son as well. Oh, I yeah, right. Fuck yeah. Okay. I'm excited for that. I'm putting up... Also, two albums that have been in polls before. One that you actually brought up on this episode, Brian, but it's I, I got a little inspired by the fact that we haven't talked about Linkin Park in a while. And one of the bands we also haven't talked about in a while is Stained. So I'm going to put up Stained's Dysfunction. Oh, uh, yeah. And then I would also love to cover Nerds in Search of. Uh, as a lot of people know, they did a remade version of that album with Spy Mob and kind of turned it into a, a new metal album. It's really good. Uh, and I think this podcast needs some Pharrell quotes in its life. So I'm putting up Stained Dysfunction, Nerd in Search of, Brian's Got Soulfly and Deadsy. The polls usually go up around the 20th of the month. 20th of the month. So keep an eye out for that on our Twitter, twitter.com, Jesus Christ, slash the POD underscore cast. And again, you can donate to the show, vote in the polls on our Patreon, patreon.com slash the POD cast, cast with a K, like the band corn. Thank you for listening. Thank you for just being you. We love you and appreciate you. We'll see you back here next month. Goodbye. Bye bye.